Will you turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, and the guys have some Bibles, so when they make their way to the back, just get their attention. If you need a copy of Scripture, they'll get one to you, and it is marked that the passage we'll be considering in 1 Kings 19. One of the most vexing problems for Christians is how for us to live distinctively Christian lives in the midst of non-Christian and even anti-Christian culture. In 1951, Richard Niebuhr wrote a famous and influential book titled Christ and Culture, in which he outlined five ways in which Christians have sought to relate to the culture. He called them, first, Christ against culture, or Christ of culture, Christ above culture, Christ transforming culture, and the fifth was Christ and culture in paradox. Now, he wrote that book over 60 years ago because this struggle to determine how to relate to the world around us is not a new challenge by any means. In fact, believers have struggled with it for literally centuries. And they've offered various answers that fall roughly into the following categories. One is I call ignorance. That's the approach that says there is no evil to see in the culture. And so as Christians and as churches, congregations of Christians, we don't need to talk about sin, especially cultural sin, because that would make you irrelevant. Does that sound familiar? If you want to be relevant, you've got to relate to the culture. And the last thing you want to do is let the culture know that it is sinning. And the way it goes about what it does. And so, as a result, by default, you become like the world. Because, in fact, worldliness, fallen values in the culture, is our natural bent. And so, ignorance, or perhaps another way to say it, is passive accommodation to the culture. That passive accommodation will result in the oxymoron of worldly Christians. Do you see that those are opposite terms? So one approach is ignorance or passive accommodation. Another one is active accommodation. Rather than the passive see no evil, this is actively seeking to present ourselves in in the world's image on the assumption that culture is good or at worst it's neutral. So anything labeled cultural is usable by the Christian and by the church in in that approach. A third approach that has been taken is isolation. It's not ignorant of the sinfulness that's involved in fallen culture, what the Bible calls the world. It's not ignorant of that in that it looks at the dangers of the world in culture and in Scripture and then chooses to withdraw. And then there is a fourth and better approach because I believe it's the biblical approach. For lack of a better term, I call it infiltration. And it's in keeping with what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. You are the salt of the earth, and you are to be the light of the world. In Matthew 13, Jesus made clear that we cannot avoid being in contact with the world. There he told a parable, the meaning of which is that God's kingdom people exist alongside those who are outside the kingdom. And Jesus likened it to wheat and weeds growing in the same field that will be definitively separated, but not until the last day. But in the meantime, 
Jesus said in his prayer in John 17 to the Father, we are to be in the world, but not to be of it. And in Scripture, we see this struggle throughout between light and dark, truth and error, believer and unbeliever, church and the world, over and over again. Jesus himself faced it when he was accused by the religious isolationists of his day of being a friend of sinners because he ate and drank with them. The great apostle Paul faced it from the other side, from the Corinthian church, who claimed that their liberty in Christ allowed them to be worldly. Believe it or not, all things are permissible, was their mantra. And going back to the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, we see this same tension. And one such episode is in the life of Elijah, God's prophet, that we've been considering for the last couple of weeks, and we'll do so again today. Let's ask God to help us as we do. Father, we're going to open your word now, and we want to be reminded it's your word. And therefore, it is not in its affirmations, in its requirements, in its prohibitions. None of these are suggestions. They are the requirements of Almighty God. Help me, help us to remember that now. And as a result, help us to give keen attention to what you have to tell us in order for us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And we saw last week that Elijah led a great contest between the true and living God, Yahweh of Israel, and the pseudo-God and would-be rival, Baal. And we saw last week that God not only defeated Baal in this contest, he humiliated his prophets. Now, notice I didn't say he humiliated Baal, because the truth is there is no such thing. There is no such God. He's a figment of unbelieving imagination. But he did defeat and humiliate the prophets of Baal in spectacular fashion. Baal was reputed, you may remember if you were with us last week, to be a god of fertility both for humans and of the earth. And it had not rained for three years at the true and living God's command. And so Elijah issued a challenge to see which God could bring restored rain. And as he did this, in this challenge, this contest, he taunted the prophets of Baal as they danced and they screamed and they cut themselves, all to get the attention of the deaf and mute because non-existent God that they served. And Elijah even ordered water be poured on the altar, three times, in fact. And then he offered sacrifice and he prayed. And the Bible tells us fire consumed the sacrifice and the water And then, indeed, rain came from heaven. Now, after that unmistakable demonstration of the power of God, you would think, would you not, that there would be an absolute, complete, everybody involved, falling on their knees, revival in Israel. And indeed, in chapter 18 and verse 39, as we saw last week, in response to all of this, it says, when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. But I want you to notice the response of the queen, Queen Jezebel, in chapter 19 and verse 1. Ahab, the king, told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, 
May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. She is saying, unmistakably, I still believe in the gods. May the gods deal with me ever so severely if I still believe in the gods and you, Elijah, are a dead man. And the prophet Elijah complains in verse 10. Look down at verse 10, if you will. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, God. They have torn down your altars, put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. Now here's Elijah apparently not giving a whole lot of credence to the profession of repentance that we looked at back in chapter 18 and verse 39. And that's probably with good reason. It's clear at the beginning of verse chapter 19 that the queen is unmoved by the demonstration of the true and living God's power. And Elijah knows that the elders and the people of Israel are prone to follow the political and cultural winds. If Jezebel is unimpressed, the queen, and she is on this march to continue to try to stamp out the worship of the true and living God and those who represent him, then Elijah knows it will not be long before the fickle people follow again. As a matter of fact, when you come to chapter 21, just two chapters later, in verses 11 through 14, we find Jezebel ordering the murder of an innocent man just to steal his property. And those verses in chapter 21, verses 11 through 14, tell us that the elders of Israel did her bidding in that. Killing an innocent man just to take his stuff, and she orders them to do it, and they carry it out at her behest. And so what is a prophet of the true and living God to do? What are the people of God to do in living in a time and a place and a culture like that? And that's the question for us in chapter 19, then, of 1 Kings. And I have outlined for you in the outline that was inserted in your program. I encourage you, please take a look at that. If you don't have that already out, please take a look. And I say there, in our fallen world, we need to understand a number of things. This is the way Elijah is to live. This is the way we are to live in a fallen world. First, we need to understand that the world will not accept evidence. The world will not accept evidence. Now, notice in that first point, I have the word world in quotes. Now, why is that? I've already alluded to it in my comments already, and I've said it in the past, so some of you will remember, but a biblical definition of the world is not just the place where we live, but rather it is the system that is anti-God and anti-Christ and thus anti-Christian. A working definition of the world is this, it's fallen values, that is sinful values expressed in culture. And so worldliness is the expression of sinful values in culture, whether that culture be found inside or outside the church. Because remember, Elijah is doing all of this before Israel, God's chosen nation. And we read these stories in 1 Kings 17, 18, 19, as we have these last few weeks, and You read about this guy Ahab, and it's easy to forget, given all the stuff that they have fallen into, that this guy is the king of Israel. 
Jezebel is the queen of Israel. He's married a pagan woman, and she is having a worldly influence on him as he allows her to do so, and on the nation as well. We need to understand this then, dear friends. As we, like Elijah, have to live as Christians in a worldly environment. That just like Elijah was prophesying to God's chosen people, the the nation of Israel, the problem that we have today is not so much the church being in the world. It is the world being in the church. And that was what was going on in Israel. These were God's people, supposedly. And this is the way they were behaving. If we're going to live successfully and rightly within the midst of worldliness, inside and outside the church, then we cannot naively believe that sinfulness can be overcome, hear this, by the spectacular. By putting on a spectacle. Do you understand that, church? That many of our churches think that we can win the world if we show them a good time, a good show? Man, you just saw fireworks at Mount Carmel. That's the best show anybody is ever going to produce. And Jezebel's unmoved. And ultimately, many in Israel are going to be unmoved. You see, dear friends, we cannot believe that the spectacular and the show that we put on is what's going to sway fallen people. Or our reasoned argument is what is going to sway fallen people. You know that there is one thing and one thing only that is going to sway fallen people. And the Bible says fallenness means dead in sin. Spiritually dead. The only thing that does that is the breath of the living Spirit of God on a dead spirit. And the spiritual resurrection then takes place. But we in the church often make the mistake of thinking that people are not depraved so much as deprived. Deprived of just, they just haven't heard the right argument yet. They just haven't seen the right show yet. And God, throughout Scripture, has shown people the show. And His show's better than anyone we could ever put together. And nothing, nothing moves people until the Spirit of God moves upon their heart. And He does that through the preaching, the faithful preaching of the gospel, the Word of God. So, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus told the story. Lazarus and the rich man, you remember that. The rich man goes to hell. And he lifts up his eyes in hell and he sees Father Abraham and he's speaking to him. And he says this, says this rich man, if someone from the dead goes to them, them being my brothers, send someone to them to tell them, do not come to this place. If someone from the dead goes to them, they'll repent. Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Why is that? Because we cannot naively assume that what people need is just more information or something spectacular. God has done plenty of spectacular stuff. He made this world ex nihilo, out of nothing. And yet, 
sinful hearts find ways to deny God is the creator. Jesus is alive, as we have sung today. And God has given Acts chapter 1 and verse 3 many convincing proofs that he is alive. Yet people do not believe. And what is the reason for all of that? John chapter 3 says this, Light has come into the world. It's not lack of information. It's not a lack of the spectacular. Light has come. Men loved darkness, though, instead of light because their deeds were evil. And so I say we need to understand that as we live in a fallen culture, the world is not swayed because it does not believe the evidence. Now, why not? Because it already has spectacles on that color the way it sees the facts. We all look at the same facts. We all look at the same stuff. But we interpret it differently because we look at it through different lenses, a different view of the world, a different world view. I have a book on my shelf that I've had for many years called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a very helpful book. It is chock full of evidence for the truth of Scripture, for the fact of the resurrection, a host of things. But at the beginning of that book, the author quotes a Christian apologist, one who defends the Christian faith, James Warwick Montgomery. He quotes Montgomery as telling a story to warn us as we look at all this evidence that unless God turns the light on, the evidence ain't going to matter. And here's the story that James Warwick Montgomery tells. I've told it before. Some of you perhaps have heard it. It's a fictitious story, but to make the point. And he says that uh, there was a guy, uh, some people who had a friend, who this friend was going around telling people he was dead. And he kept going around saying, I'm, I'm dead. Well, his friends got together and said, we're worried about Joe. What can we do to help Joe? And uh, they decided that they needed to show Joe conclusively some difference between people who are dead and people who are alive. And so they looked in medical journals, encyclopedias, and all of that, and they determined that it is absolutely scientifically the case that living people bleed and dead men don't bleed. And so they showed all this to, to Joe. And they said, Joe, read this article. And Joe read the article. And then he read another article. And after at the end of all of that, they said, what do you conclude? And he said, dead men don't bleed. And then one of them took out just a knife and cut him slightly, and he started to bleed. And then they said, Joe, what do you think of that? And Joe looked at the blood coming out and said, well, I guess dead men do bleed. Do you see that Joe was already determined to believe a particular thing. And the evidence does not sway. And the spectacular does not sway. It is the Spirit of God using the Word of God that convinces people. So as we as God's people and God's church live in a fallen world, we need to understand the world does not accept evidence because it's looking through tainted lenses. Secondly, in your outline, believers will pursue God's holiness. Now, as I read this story of Elijah in chapter 19 of 1 Kings, I'm seeing Elijah as an extremely dedicated follower of God. And I am not seeing him the way he is often portrayed in this chapter as a whining, holier-than-thou prophet. Those who see him that way give the following interpretation to this chapter. Let me give it to you in a nutshell. After the great victory at Mount Carmel and the queen's decree that Elijah will be killed, 
Elijah is afraid and he runs away and he throws a pity party for himself. And in his words to God, in effect, he's saying, Lord, after all I've done for you, I'm the only one. I just want to die. And in fact, in verse 4, if you look at verse 4, it says he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And so, in this interpretation of what's going on with Elijah, he's apparently gone from the mountaintop experience, literally, at Mount Carmel, to a death wish, death wish that this passage is often, therefore, preached to say that Elijah was probably, I'm not making this up, he was probably bipolar, manic depressive. He just had wild swings, man. Now, let me say, it's certainly possible that any of God's servants could be in our bipolar, including Elijah. But I do not think what we read in this chapter is actually a pity party. Rather, I believe, surely, Elijah is in deep sorrow. But not because he's whining and he's hiding, not because he's afraid to die. Now, let's deal with the whining part first. I'm the only one. Why is he saying this? If you look at verse 10, and then again in verse 14, it says precisely the same thing, verses 10 and 14. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. He is certainly upset. He is certainly down. He is certainly broken. But hear this. I'm convinced It is for God's sake and not for His. That the statements that he makes in verses 10 and 14 are statements of truth, not whining. This has actually happened. And Lord, I can't take it anymore. I am so broken at the sinfulness of the people who name your name. And in fact, the way that these verses are written in Hebrew underscores this. Because the lines begin with, your altars they have torn down, and your prophets have been killed. This is about you and your reputation. And when he says, I'm the only one, you might rightly ask, well, what about back in chapter 18, where we're told, the beginning of that chapter, through a man named Obadiah, that God has hidden a hundred of his prophets. So there are other prophets of the true and living God. But chapter 18 tells us that they are all hiding in caves. (laughs) So what Elijah is saying is true. I'm the only one visibly and openly opposing the machine of Baal worship. And it has broken me, Lord. So he's not whining, he's telling the truth. And he's complaining, but not for his sake, but for God's sake. He is down but he's not psychotic. And he's hiding not because he's afraid to die, but rather because he does not want to give a victory to the chief representative of Baal, that is Jezebel, and allow her to kill him. He wants to die, but not at her hand. In fact, he does ask God, take my life, in verse 4. If he wanted to... All he wanted to do was die, just hang around Jezebel. (laughs) It won't take long, and she'll issue the decree. Now, Elijah has been put on the psychologist's couch by so many interpreters 
over the years. But I'd like to suggest that we're the ones who should undergo analysis. The truth is, it is very hard for us to identify at all with a guy like Elijah. That guy loved God that much? That, he was dedicated to God that much? That can't, he's got to be more like me. <laughs> I'm a whiner, and I throw pity parties. So Elijah must also. You know what that's called? Now we're all on the couch. That's called projection. Psychological projecting. And we project on Elijah what we often do. And the truth is, as I read through chapter 19 and I see a guy like that, man, am I convicted. If you were with us two weeks ago during our baptism service, I gave a short gospel presentation. And one of the points I made in that gospel presentation is God does not grade on a curve. And related to that is this. We love curves. We love people who grade on a curve, right? I mean, I wouldn't have got through school if it wasn't for the curve, okay? So we love people like But here's what we hate. We hate curve breakers. I mean, here's the thing. After the test, we're all in the hallway. We're all moaning, comparing notes. What'd you get? 65. What'd you get? 63. 71. Good. Good. Mediocre loves mediocre. Failure loves failure. And then somebody comes along and says 95. And we think, kill him. Everyone hates a curve breaker. And guys like Elijah are curve breakers, not because Elijah is great, but because a great and gracious God has been good and gracious to him. And you notice God does not rebuke Elijah in this story. He doesn't rebuke his statement of, I'm the only one left, and they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets, and all of this has happened. In fact, he agrees with it. Elijah makes that statement in verse 10 and again in verse 14. And notice in verse 15. After he says this again, the Lord said to him, Go back the way you came. Go back and go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Maholah, to succeed you as prophet. But then notice verse 17. Jehu will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. I agree with the indictment that you have just presented about Israel. That's what God's saying. And as a result now of you presenting this, in fact, verses 13 and 14 are a formal indictment against the people of Israel. And the judge has now sentenced Because he agrees with the indictment. And so God does not rebuke him. It's not this this pity party. And when God asks at the end of verse 9 and the end of verse 13, in both of those, God asks this, What are you doing here, Elijah? He is not chiding him for being where he is. Many people interpret this to to mean this. He got scared. He ran from, from Jezebel. And he finds himself in a place he's not to be. And here's God saying, What are you doing here? And then he starts whining and the pity party goes and all that. But rather, when God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's not chiding him because he's the one who led him there. 
Verse 7. Elijah had fallen asleep. An angel had come to him, tended to him, gave him uh, some sustenance. And then, verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, is he supposed to be at Horeb? Yes. And here's why. Because there are a bunch of parallels between this story of Elijah and his interaction with the true and living God and that of Moses and his interaction with Yahweh, the God of Israel, as recorded in Exodus chapters 32 and 33. Let me give you some of those parallels. First, you remember Moses met with God on the mountain. And if I were to ask you what that mountain is, most of you would say Sinai, Mount Sinai. That's right. But what you may not know is Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same place. Elijah has gone to the same place where Moses had earlier met with God. In fact, here's what uh, Exodus 31 tells us. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, note Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Now, I've highlighted Mount Sinai. Just remember, all this is happening according to Exodus 31 at Mount Sinai. And then it goes on to say, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And then Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing. Bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf. And this is what we know as the golden calf incident, right? All at Mount Sinai. But Psalm 106 says this, At Horeb they made a calf and worshipped an idol cast from metal. Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are the same place. And Elijah has gone to the same place where God met with Moses. And by God's divine appointment, he is now going to meet with God there. Further, in verse 8 of 1 Kings 19, we're told that he traveled, notice the length of time, 40 days and 40 nights. The Bible tells us in Exodus 24, Moses entered the cloud as he went up the mountain. He stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. You remember the famous incident in Exodus 33 where God is going to pass by Moses, but he has to pass by very carefully because no one can see God's full glory and and live. And so he passes by him. And that word pass by that is used in Exodus 33 is the same one used of Elijah's encounter at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai in verse 11. Notice verse 11, the Lord said, get out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Same thing. And in Exodus 32, here's what we read. With Moses, the Lord said, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And so, how do we live as people in a culture 
that is given to fallenness, given to sinfulness, both inside and outside the church. Believers like Elijah in that time will be zealous for God's glory. He was zealous for God's glory. And as a result of that, and zealous for God's holiness, and so as a result, God brought him to Sinai. God brought him to Horeb than to speak to him and to actually encourage him. When he says that at the end of verse 9, at the end of verse 13, what are you doing here, Elijah? He's inviting Elijah to think about the moment. Think about now why you're here. And then there's a dialogue. And God's sacred purpose for this appointment with his servant is then carried out. Now, I say thirdly in your outline, living in a fallen culture, how are we to behave? What are we to remember? We're to remember that God will provide for his people. In the midst of everything that's going on, in the midst of whatever threats may come, and threats are coming, I don't know about in the remainder of my lifetime, but the threats are coming. There will, I will predict, in my lifetime or or after, it will be impossible for you to preach against homosexuality as sin. I'll predict that for you. It will be impossible to do that lawfully. But those who follow God will say what God says. And in the midst of that, God will provide for His people. And God will provide for His people as he always does, one, materially. Notice verse 5. As Elijah goes on this, this journey, it says, All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. Verse 6, He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. Now, that may sound familiar to some of you. Do you remember two chapters earlier in chapter 17? When... Elijah was in need of food and sustenance. These are the very things, in fact, the very words that are used in chapter 17 to describe God's supplying for his prophet, for his servant. And so here God is supplying for his material needs. And most of all, God will supply for his people in the midst of a fallen culture spiritually by giving them the word of God to sustain them in the midst of all the darkness. And that's what he does with with Elijah. Notice verse 11. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. Elijah... I don't make my presence known primarily through the spectacular. Oh, I can put on the show. I can do the spectacular. I did at Mount Carmel, and you have seen the reaction. And now in in this setting, there is the earthquake, and there's the wind, and there's the fire. But it's not by that means. The end of verse 12, after the fire came a gentle whisper. What we need more than anything at all times and at all places is not the show and it's not the spectacular. We need desperately the word of the living God. And 
That is what God is reminding Elijah of. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, but his presence for his people is in the word. In a fallen culture where it looks dark, and God has fallen on hard times, and his polling, polling numbers are falling. We can get desperate, and we can say, we've got to spruce things up. We've got to put a better show on to attract people. We've got to, we've got to remember what people need is the Word of God, used by the Spirit of God. And understand this. What God is telling Elijah is that, look, I am at work at all times, often quietly at work, even when you don't see all the ways that I'm at work. Your job, Elijah, your job, Ken, Your job, church, is to be faithful to my word, and I'm at work. And then lastly, here's what we need to remember. God will multiply his people. Verse 18, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. All whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. I, the true and living God, will always have a people for myself. Always a remnant for myself. You need not take matters into your own hands. You do what I said. You rely on what I supply. Particularly rely on my word to you. And I will multiply my people. You remember Jesus said famously in Matthew 16 and verse 18. I will build my church. It's Jesus' church. It's not mine. It's not yours. It is not for us to do as we will. His church is to rely on him and the things he provides and then say, Lord, you give the increase. We will plant and we will water and we will preach and we will evangelize and you build your church. So in the midst of the fallen world, that's what God's teaching Elijah, and that is what he's teaching us. Now, for your take-home truth, I say this. Christians are always forsaken by the world. Curve breakers. But they're never forgotten by God. Always forsaken by the world, never forgotten by God. And we're going to bow and thank the Lord for his provisions, for his people and his church. Let's ask the Lord. Help us never to forget what his priorities are. Help us to maintain those both personally and corporately as a church. Some of you came into this room and you are part of the world. You identify completely with the fallen values of the world. In fact, you didn't know there was any difference between the values that God holds and wants us to uphold and the values of the world. Or perhaps as we have gone through this, you've seen that stark contrast then, and that God, the true and living God, takes it very seriously. And that the true and living God is a holy God. The world has become contaminated by fallen values, by sin. They're expressed in the culture. And you now see that, perhaps. Well, how do you extract yourself from the world? Well, you don't. God calls you out of the world and to himself. And he calls you through the good news message of Jesus. And here's how that good news message applies to you. Recognize that you're a sinner. Living fallen values in the world that God has made. All of us come into this world worldly. 
sinners. But recognize that God the Son died to pay the penalty for your sin. He will adopt you into His family. And He will set your feet in a new direction. That's what that third bullet is, repent. I'm going to go your way, not my way. And then you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. When we do, if you are in that situation, God is calling you out of the world and to Himself. Then you pray to Him from your heart to God in your own words. Something like what's on the screen. But in your own words, God, I'm a sinner. God, I'm worldly. I ask you to save me out of the world. Give me a relationship with yourself. I believe Jesus died for my sins and I want to follow him with my life. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word, the truth of your word. Lord, this is written so many centuries ago and yet it is so relevant for us today. Your servants are always a minority, and your true servants will be zealous for your glory, for your holiness. We thank you for the work of grace that you did in the life of Elijah and the work of grace that you've done and are doing in the lives of your people here who you have called out of the world and to yourself. I pray for any who came into this room who do not have a relationship with you, that that relationship is being established right now by the Spirit of God tugging at their heart and calling them to yourself. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who alone makes it possible for us to have this eternal familial relationship with you. Oh Lord, help us to heed these instructions from your word in the day in which we live, both as your people personally throughout this week and each week, and as your church in the months and years ahead. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.